Welcome back to the Mandarin Blueprint Podcast. My name is Phil Crimmins, and the Mandarin Blueprint Podcast is a weekly show that covers the questions, comments, and emails, and community forum posts for people who are participating in the Pronunciation Mastery video course, as well as the Mandarin Blueprint Method video course. The questions are of all sorts, how to learn a character, how to pronounce different syllables properly, grammatical questions, or questions about individual vocabulary words, and of course, uh, questions about the method itself, because the method is a, a unique way of looking at uh, individual characters and then building up on them logically so that you can stay connected to what you already know. That's what the Mandarin Blueprint is all about. It's designed to keep your knowledge growing in a reasonable pace and always in a way that connects to that which you've already covered, which is how learning should work. You should never put something in front of somebody that is has very little connection to what they already know. Now, if you learn an individual character component that's really easy, like say a horizontal line or a vertical line, these are things that even if you don't know anything about Chinese, you can get started learning this type of thing. However, uh, if you then graduate to using those vertical lines and horizontal horizontal lines to learn an individual Chinese character, well, that Chinese character you learned is connected to a simple concept you already learned. And then let's say you do that to learn a few characters, and then you add another component in, just one, just add one component to those characters you learned, and then you make a few more characters with that, and then, oh, that's, that's pretty good, right? So now you know a few characters, add in another component, and you learn a few more characters, and then suppose you learn about 15 characters, and you find out, oh, of these 15 characters, you can take uh, these five and make four two-character words out of them. And so now you're not only looking at individual characters, you're also looking at two-character words. You keep going, you keep adding some words, you keep adding some characters, and in this process you realize, oh, now there are enough characters and words together to create simple sentences that are grammatically correct. And then you just keep following that process, and then you go, okay, now we have enough characters and words and grammatical structures to create a whole paragraph that you can read without the aid of pinyin, Right, so that's great. And then you continue through that. You go, how about putting some paragraphs together to create some stories with a structure with a beginning, middle, and end? And this process works so long as you take little steps that are all related to what you already know. And that's what the Mandarin Blueprint Method is all about. Now, as usual, we'd like to start our podcast with a grammar point. And I thought I'd just give a little update before we get into it, which is that uh, we finished writing up our articles about Chinese conjunctions, which is also what today's grammar point will be about. And so we're going to take a little break from focusing as much on grammar and get back into adding some more content to the intermediate uh, stage of the course. That is to say, longer form story-based content. We have about another 60 articles, 60 stories that we're going to add into the intermediate course to give you more context and more uh, opportunity to practice the vocabulary you've learned in a graded way. So the texts will be at about 98% comprehension. So the characters in it, 98% of them will be characters you've already learned, and any character that you, or word that you haven't learned will be uh, given a blue highlight, and you'll be given the definition in the sidebar. And this way, you can get to that level of reading called extensive reading. Extensive reading means that you understand at least 98% of the content, and therefore you can relax a bit. You don't have to be quite so intensive, which would be the opposite, intensive reading. 
you don't have to be quite so intensive. And so therefore, you can let the material wash over you and acquire language naturally through comprehensible input. And the greater the context, that is to say, the more uh, information that you have that's all related to each other, like, say, a story, the better your acquisition, the more efficient your acquisition will be. And so we're going to switch to that for a little bit, make that our focus as a, a course creation content. After we're finished with that, we'll go back and continue making some more uh, grammar lessons. And of course, eventually, when we have a, a good enough sort of, uh, well, I'll be straight with you, a good enough sort of financial situation as a company where we feel like we're solid with our monthly recurring revenue, then we'll expand the course out to 3,000 characters. So it's really exciting. I love doing it. It's really fun stuff. And we're going to get to all of that uh, in over the next few years. And so for now, though, let's talk about today's grammar point. Today's grammar point is covering two tags in your flashcard software, both of which are conjunctions, and both have to do with the word or. So this or that. But in Chinese, you don't use the same word for every version of or. So take, for example, if I say to you, you can have Cheerios or eggs for breakfast. Compare that to the sentence, do you want Cheerios or eggs for breakfast? One is a statement of your two possibilities. The other is a question asking which of the two options you'd prefer. And so in Chinese, they actually use a different word for these two possibilities. The first is hai shi. So the first tag is GW connector or in questions, lian si hai shi. And the other is GW connector or in statements, lian si huo or huo zhe. So huo and huo zhe is the version of or that you'll use in statements and hai shi is the one you'll use in questions. Now, there is an important exception to this, which is that you can use hai shi in statements if there is a question embedded in the statement. So, for example, let's take that idea of Cheerios or eggs. So, Cheerios is le. That's the brand name for Cheerios, which literally means like a crunchy grain happiness. <laughs> and the word for eggs is dan. So, I might say, dan. And that would be a straight up question, and I use hai shi because it's a question. But I might say, for example, the, the reaction might be, 我不知道想吃脆骨乐,还是鸡蛋? Which technically the sentence is, I don't know if I want to eat Cheerios or eggs. So on a technical level, this is a statement. But because the question inside of it needs to be answered in some way, you'll still use hai shi. So I'm going to point out this exception in the different sentences, but this is all just to say that Generally speaking, as a rule of thumb, when you have a question and you're putting forward two options, you'll use hai shi to represent or, and if it's a statement, you'll use huo zhe, unless the question, there's a question embedded in that statement. So let's look at some example sentences so that we can get a real sense of how this works. The sentence one, sentence one are really is a dialogue here. So what we have is a conversation between Xiao Wang and Bill. So Xiao Wang says, 你去过中国,对吧? Bill, 去过,小王。去年还是今年? Bill, 去年一月和今年二月? 
So this conversation is, Xiao Wang says, you've been to China before, right? Bill says, yes. Xiao Wang says, this year or last year? Bill responds, January last year and February this year. So in this dialogue, Xiao Wang presents two options. The option one is Tunian, last year, and option two is Jinian, this year. And he's not framing it like you can go last year or this year. He's asking Bill, did you go this year or last year? And so now suppose that Xiao Wang was talking to a third person before speaking with Bill. They might say, so they haven't met with Bill yet, and so they say, Xiao Wang says, 我不确定, Bill, 去年还是今年去过中国? I'm not certain whether it was last year or this year that Bill went to China. So again, we have a question that needs answering embedded within that statement. So even though I'm not certain whether it was last year or this year that Bill went to China is technically a statement, you would still use shi in this context. So essentially, shi often comes along with a level of uncertainty, right? Let's look at sentence two. 你想打包还是在这儿吃呢? Do you want takeout or dine in? And of course, this is the classic question that you'll definitely hear anytime you go to a restaurant, especially like a fast food restaurant or something like that. And so again, option A, 打包, takeout. Option B, 在这儿吃, eat in. So perhaps you respond with this particular uh, sentence. Suppose you hadn't thought about it. You didn't realize there was the option. So you say, 哦, 我不知道想打包还是在这儿吃。让我想一想。好,在这儿吃吧. Oh, I don't know if I want take in or dine, take out or dine in. Let me think for a sec. Okay, I'll eat here. So again, technically, 我不知道想打包还是在这儿吃 is a statement, but a question is still embedded in, embedded in that statement, hence the use of 还是. Let's look at sentence three. 走东边还是西边? Walk to the east or the west? So you get the idea. When you're using or in a question, or questions embedded in statements, use hai shi. And by the way, in that previous sentence where we had zou dong bian, hai shi si bian, you could, if you want, to remind yourself that it is a question. It's not a yes or no question, but it is a question. So you might want to add ne at the end. So you, for example, zou si bian, hai shi dong bian ne. And by adding that na, it just makes it a little bit more polite. It makes it, the tone a little softer. It's not required at all. You could just ask it straight up. It's not necessary to use na. But again, if you want to sound more polite and also kind of give yourself a reminder that this is a question because you're still getting used to how to ask questions in Chinese, that's perfectly fine. Now let's look at how we use or in statements. So this is something that will... Uh, We'll cover, and if you want to find the sentences in your flashcard software that use this, look for the GW connector or in statements. Lian si huo, huo zhe. Sentence four. 我用勺子吃面或面包. I use a spoon to eat noodles or bread. So this is a weird sentence, but it's because it's from level 13, where our vocabulary is a bit limited. So we, uh, you know, there's probably not that many people who would eat bread with a spoon, but hey, there's somebody in the world who does. <laughs> but the point is, it's not a question, right? And it's not even a question embedded in a statement. It's just saying, I use a spoon to eat noodles or bread. There's, it's just a straight up possibility, one possibility, two, and there's no uh, uncertainty about it. So when you have that type of situation, you'll use 或 or 或者.
Now let's take a look at sentence five. 他们考得好的话，你还得送他们现金或者一些很贵的东西。If they do well on their tests, you have to give them cash or something expensive. No question about it. In this in this sentence, if Chinese kids do well on the Gaokao, which actually just happened here in、uh, in China, you'd best reward them. So in this case, we have possibility one of cold hard cash, 现金 or 或者 something expensive, right? So these are your two possibilities, and you know this is not a question. It's not a a question embedded in a statement. It's just a statement. These are the two possibilities. You know, you could you could pick one.、Um, So you might be wondering, is there a difference between "huo" and "huo jo"? And、uh, there's barely any difference other than "huo" by itself is a wee bit more common in written Chinese、uh, than spoken Chinese. But you know, that's、um, it, it's barely any difference. You'll, I, I would say I hear people say "huo jo" in spoken Chinese a bit more often, but not too much to worry about there. Now, there's one other way to use "hoja" that's quite useful, and it, it's still a an or statement, but it's an either or statement. So let's take a look at this simple sentence: "Hoja nizo, hoja wozo." Either you go or I go. So if you put "hoja" in front of both possibilities, then what you're saying is either this or that. So either you go or I go, and This is definitely fine.、Uh, it's a little bit more common to use the same structure, but replace "hoja" with the word "yama." Yama needs all. Yama wants all, and、uh, it also means either or. When there's two possibilities like that,、um, yama can feel a little bit more hard line. Like it's like yama needs all, yama wants all, and so make your choice, right? And hoja needs all. Hoja wozo feels a little bit softer, but on the other hand,、uh, I do hear yama a bit more often. Still, this is another way that you can use hoja to mean or, and in this case, it's either or. So, if you'd like to see more sentences like this, and you're on the course and you're a subscriber to the the Mandarin Blueprint Method course, you'll see in your flashcard software that some sentences are tagged with the two tags we talked about at the beginning of this lesson. So, if you want to see more sentences like this and get some more practice, you can just click those tags and take a look. Let's get into our comments and questions from this week. Now, the first one I want to address is something that Luke addressed in last week's podcast, but I wanted to expand upon a little bit. So, in the lesson for new vocab unlocked for "zihua,"、uh, Deborah Driscoll asked, "Is there much difference between 计划 and 打算 And so, Luke correctly pointed out that they can both be used as nouns and verbs,、uh, and they can both,、uh, when you're using them as a noun and a verb. 计划 does tend to be used a little bit more often as a noun. 打算 does tend to be used a little more often as a、uh, as a verb, but they do have a slight difference that Luke didn't mention that I thought I would just point out here. So,、uh, and it's a subtle difference, and it's these are the kind of things that you will pick up on as you get further、um, understanding, and you don't even necessarily consciously understand these things. It's just that you use the right one. In the different contexts, that's something so important to understand about these types of questions. I love these types of questions. They're great. They're interesting. It's fun to take do the intellectual exercise of figuring out what context would I use daswan and what context would I use tihua. But the reality is that if you get enough comprehensible input, you'll just use the right one in the right context because you've seen it in your input. So you don't even necessarily consciously know why. But that said, though, let's talk a little bit about what the conscious difference is between them. So. Da suan often means intend to, 
when it's not a real set plan. So, like for example, I might say, So that means I intend to go to travel to France. I don't have any plans set in stone. It's just a thing I want to do in my life. I want to travel to France someday, right? And if that's what you're saying, then dasuan is the word you want to use. Now, if I said the same sentence, that is a little bit more formal, but also the plan is set. I'm doing it. That's what's going on, right? So the more objective and solid the plan is, the more appropriate jihua is. And the more vague it is and the more sort of just general intention that it is, is daswan. That's a little bit better. So just bear that in mind. It's a small, subtle difference between the two. And as a part of speech, in terms of grammar, you can place, you can use them in the same way. You can use both as a noun. You can use both as a verb. Uh, but it's just really that that sort of set solid plans versus kind of intentional someday maybe plans. Next, Corinna Wetzel in the community forum. She says, hi, everyone. I'm back to learning Mandarin after starting back in university from 2006 to 2009. I spent four months in Shanghai in 2008, but I couldn't really talk all that much, despite having studied language for quite some time by then. I mean, I was able to say hello and tell the taxi driver where to go, but that was about it. After the four months in Shanghai, I unfortunately kind of lost interest in the language for a long time, but I was lucky enough to still remember my uh, most of the pinyin pronunciation. Nevertheless, I started out with the pronunciation mastery course a couple weeks ago after trying out three other routes before. Let me just say that Luke and Phil changed my look at Mandarin completely. The studying is so much fun, and I practically have to force myself to stop watching the videos and adding more Anki cards every night because I do still have to get up for my job in the morning. It feels as if the Mandarin Blueprint method is the perfect way for me. So thank you for this and for renewing my interest in Chinese. I'm looking forward to learning more and more. Best wishes from Germany, Corinna. By the way, this GIF was basically me last night when the last video of the current character was it's a word instead of pick a prop. And so uh, <laughs> it was. it's the... Uh, Shot from Napoleon Dynamite with uh, is Napoleon's brother or cousin. He's with the glasses and the the brown mustache. He's just going yes, and so I know that feeling, Corinna. And so thank you so much for your feedback, and we're thrilled that you're doing well with it and that you're finding a new uh, a revivic a revivification of your Chinese learning. That's fantastic, and um, yeah, that type of story is great. That's cool too because you were learning Mandarin back before it was Mandarin was even a glimmer in my eye. That's, uh, that's awesome. David McKay in the community forum, he says, Hi all, David here from Glasgow, United Kingdom. I just signed up after spending some time researching into other online language providers. The Mandarin Blueprint guys presented as the most professional and organized outfit, so here I am. A complete beginner who is keen to learn a language and learn about a culture that seems so impenetrable to the Western world. I'm curious, excited, and a little nervous at the same time. Hopefully I haven't bitten off more than I can chew. Regards, David. Well, welcome, David. And uh, if we are coming off as more professional than our competitors, that's amazing because it's just Luke and I. <laughs> but we try our best. I'll give a lot of credit to Luke there because uh, Luke's always been the type of guy who wants to make sure that what we're putting out is quality. And, uh, you know, he's he's always been adamant that we don't ever put anything out that is, uh, you know, sort of half-cocked ideas about what we should be doing. So uh, I'm glad to hear that it comes across that way. And as for biting off more than you can chew, I mean, hey, there's no there's no uh, 
sort of time limit on this and you can do whatever it is per day that you feel comfortable with. And if you ever do feel overwhelmed, I mean, just do a little bit less per day because you have to let the big game win over the small game. So the small game is what am I going to do today? And that's a game you want to win. Of course, you want to win a lot of small games. But the big game is don't stop studying Chinese for years, right? And if you don't stop studying for years, you will become fluent. And so if the small game has to be sacrificed for the sake of the big game, then that just means, okay, today I just do 10 flashcards. I watch two videos and I just have a light day. Sure, that's, you know, it's how it is. Our life is flux. We are constantly in a state of emotional change and, and responsibilities changing and all the things that come with day-to-day -day experience. So the key is just to not let the habit completely fall off. And so as long as you do that, you'll be fine. And it won't be too much. Ariel Holly in the community forum, he says, Hi all. Quick thing I was wondering. Is it necessary to change the number of reviews Anki allows each day? I think the default amount is 200, but when I experimented and set it higher, Anki showed more reviews. Is it necessary to change it, or is it best to keep it a default of 200 a day? I would actually set the reviews per day to some ridiculously high number that you'll never reach. Like, say, I don't know, 10,000. And you're never going to review 10,000 a day, because the way that we use Anki cards, in especially the Mandarin Blueprint method, is that you... All of them are suspended from the beginning, which means that none of them will show up in your queue, at, in your card queue at the beginning of your learning. You unsuspend the cards as you learn. So you say, I learned these 10 characters today. So you unsuspend the cards associated with those 10 characters. Those cards then go into your new card queue, and then you review them for the first time. Once a card is reviewed for the first time, it becomes a review card, and then you review whatever comes up in the algorithm. And what you don't want to have happen is Anki to artificially limit your reviews because that can kind of mess up your reviewing algorithm. Anki shows you a card when you're at a 90 to 95% likelihood of remembering it. So if you artificially shorten that, say there's 205 cards to review and you've capped it at 200, well, that means that those five cards that were ready to be viewed today and should be viewed today are now not going to be viewed today and thus lowering your chance of getting it right the next day. And, you know, the if you only got, say, 80% right, Anki is a lot more frustrating. If you get 90 to 95% right, then the 5 to 10% you get wrong, you don't feel so bad about. But if you're getting, let's say you get 70% right, getting 30% of the cards wrong is very frustrating. So you want to see all the cards that are due today, today. You don't want to point uh, push them off into the future so what could happen is that you're adding so many new cards that your review count each day starts to get overwhelming and the solution for that is just to add fewer new cards per day for a few days and that will naturally decrease your number of review cards so uh definitely set it higher than 200 would be my suggestion next we have andrew clapham on bonus grammar point gw helper possession and uh this is a, this one made me laugh out loud when I saw it. I feel like Phil's Chinese mastery, confidence, self-assuredness, and pure unbridled testosterone has absolutely peaked in this lesson. I'm changing my prop for Jin from Arnold Schwarzenegger to Phil. Inspiring, bro. Well, <laughs> I don't know how I'm. I, I have probably normal levels of testosterone for somebody who exercises frequently, and uh, but I don't know. That I like. I like that you're enjoying the course. I'm glad that you find it inspiring, and uh, I could be a prop. Sure, use me as a prop. I uh, as long as it helps you learn Chinese, I'm happy to be a prop for you, Andrew. 
Christopher Weeks on level four complete. Seeing not just what you have achieved, but what is coming up is extremely motivating. Also, dividing the words into their different parts of speech is excellent. I am sure this took a long time to do for each level, but I'm very glad you did. Well, that's something that uh, it occurred to me, I think it was maybe a six, six months ago that I did that, and I just said, like, well, people seeing how many words they've learned, and also that many words are have more than one part of speech, you know, many words are not just a noun, but also a verb, and blah, blah, blah. That uh, is something that can make you realize, oh, actually, my word count is quite high, quite a bit higher than I originally thought. So um, I'm glad to find that you find that useful. And of course, that's game theory there. And that's like feedback is that if you know where you are and you know where you're going and you, and you can see how far it is to go, then you're getting feedback. And feedback is what makes games so fun. Like take, for example, the game Tetris. Uh, you can't really ultimately win at Tetris. Tetris ends when you lose, right? Like 100% of the time, the games end by losing. So, what, I mean, you can obviously win compared to your previous point total, but people love Tetris. When Tetris first came out, it was super popular. And so what's that about? Well, it's that you get this constant feedback while you're playing the game. And so this is a game too. It's called Learn Chinese, except that unlike Tetris, which is gets you better at the game itself, Learning Chinese through Mandarin Blueprint gets you prepared to communicate with, you know, over a billion people. So uh, glad to hear that you're finding that type of feedback useful, uh, Christopher. Next, we have a comment from Kim Thomas on new vocabulary unlocked for Zhuozi, which is in level 13 of the beginning of phase three of the course where you start learning sentences. And she says, I cannot believe I can actually read these sentences. Yes, I read them very slow. However, I'm astonished how quickly I've been able to learn, read characters and sentences. This course is amazing. Phil and Luke, cheers. I'm looking forward to being fluent and literate by this time next year. A very achievable goal, Kim. And uh, I just thought I would mention that, you know, of course, I was actually just on a uh, phone call with Jason Pond for his case study. And uh, I don't know if it'll be out by the time that this podcast is out, but look out for it. And uh we were talking about this after the call um, and he, you know, about the question of how quickly you should be reading the sentences. And of course, in level 13, it's the slowest and most difficult it's ever going to be, right? Like it's, it's always, it's only going to get easier from there. But of course, the first time that you're ever seeing words put together into these different structures is, uh, you know, it's going to, it requires more churning of the gears in your brain, of course. But that Working that out and grinding that out and making those neural pathways is something that uh, will make future sentences, even if you are seeing a new structure, not brand new. Like it's like right in level uh, 13, they're brand new. Everything is new about it except the characters themselves. And it's still kind of tricky, which is interesting to think about because teachers, apart from the Mandarin Blooper method, will show you sentences where you don't even know the characters. Like, at least with the Mandarin Blooper method, you know the characters and the words inside the sentence, so you can sort of only have to focus on the grammar structures, and then these other courses out there, they don't even make sure you know the characters and words. So, uh, you're in g good shape, and I'm glad to see that you appreciate how cool this is. I mean, like, you're able to read the sentences after only 105 characters and not needing any pinyin is great. And uh, as for the fluent and literate by this time next year, I mean, yeah, that's absolutely possible if you keep up the daily routine. And, uh, you know, for to from where you are to being, you know, reasonably fluent and literate, obviously fluency is a, is a spectrum and all that, but being able to get by in you know, your average situations, I'd say maybe, let's see, if you were to learn 
uh, five characters a day, you could certainly do it. Five characters a day and they're associated unlocked vocabulary words and sentences and all that. But if you did that for a year, you'd be in great shape. You'd, pro you'd be through our materials, that's for sure. Next, Leonor, Leonor Proven Pro Provencal, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, on bonus character analysis of Xi. So this is a video we actually made back in 2017 uh, that is an analysis of how you might understand this particular character, Xi, uh, as in Lian Xi, the Xi. Thank you for the great way of teaching. I am a slow learner, and it's hard for me to get used to pronouncing the words properly and understanding where the words came from, or I could say the root words. But now I understand, and it's easy to, easy to use them because I learned how to use them as a prefix or a suffix. Thank you, Phil and Luke. Yeah, you know, uh, the way we made that video and the videos, there's like 15 videos we made in 2017 as a promotional thing for the Shanghaiist. Uh, and the way we made them is based on our teacher we had in university named Yo Lao Shi. And Yo Lao Shi is the best teacher for Chinese I ever had. He was fantastic. And what the reason why was because he focused on the language from a character level. So he would take a character and show you how it functions in several different words, which is what we did in that video. And from my perspective, that's always such a enlightening way to look at the language. So uh, I'm glad that you found it so useful, uh, Leonor. Next, we have Corinna Wetzel on bonus, the Chinese learning unique problem and how to fix it. So uh, she says, the first three years I studied Chinese in university were the same for me as what Luke just said in the video. We were more focused on speaking and pronunciation than on writing and characters. I mean, we learned some of the stroke order rules and a character here or there, but I could never remember them well. When I spent time in Shanghai, I was able to recognize a character every once in a while, but never to the point of being able to write them myself. Your course really helps with this. Thanks to the mnemonic devices, which are getting easier and easier for each character, I'm learning so quickly and it's so much fun. It's crazy how little characters are focused on in other curriculums, but it's also understandable in a way because they just don't know how to teach them. You know, they're just like, well, we learned them in school and we just wrote them over and over for about 10 years. And we had a teacher telling us that if we don't, we're going to get in trouble with our parents. And like, it's just the motivations for learning characters by rote were strong <laughs> for them. And it's never going to be strong for adult uh, Westerners or just any just adult non-Chinese. And so you got to come up with something better. That's what we did. And so I'm so pleased that you're finding it to be uh that useful and of course the the key that it's fun. Next, Julio no Novoa Baron on it's a word for quai. He says, I am confused. Both quai and quai are pronounced the same but have different meanings. So the two quais he's referring to are the one that means fast and the one that means uh, either a lump or a piece and it's usually a measure word. The only difference between these two characters is the left side component. The left side component of lump or piece is the soil component, and the left side component of quai is the heart component. So he says, I'm confused. Both quai and quai are pronounced the same, but have different meanings. Would you care to explain them to me? Thanks. So uh, this is an example of two characters that are called phonetic semantic compounds, which just means that the uh, one of the components gives an indication of the meaning, and another of the component gives an indication of the sound. Now, they both share the phonetic component. So the right side component is what gives you a hint as to what the sound might be. And so the fact that they're both pronounced quai is 
reflective of that right side component. Now the left side component is supposed to give an indication of the meaning. Well, soil, meaning giving some indication of the meaning of lump or or piece, you can sort of understand that. You know, you could get a lump of soil in your hand. No, no, uh, not too difficult to understand why that might be. And then the left side component of heart for quiet. That's an interesting one because quiet can mean fast, but it can also mean like sort of fast as in like the word quiet, meaning happy. So like sort of you might feel a sort of rush of uh, if you're feeling joy. And so it's got that heart component there. And so that's really what that comes down to. The fact that they have the same pronunciation in no way means that they have the same meaning. That the main indication of the meaning is the left side component. And so hopefully that clears that up for you, Julio. Christopher Thompson on New Vocabulary Unlocked for Xiangfa. I think I'm starting to get the hang of sentences like this. At its core, the sentence starts with the host, I, and the action, and ends with the guest, so the uh, um, subject, predicate, or subject, verb, object, right? Uh, and we call that host, does what, guest. The basic underlying idea is that, is that I know a lot of people. And we are just modifying what kind of people. So it's a bit like saying, I know a lot of idea-having people, or I know a lot of uh, learned people with ideas, that kind of idea. That's, you know, you can say, which means, like, he's got a lot of ideas. He's very, it's not exactly opinionated, because opinionated means to sound like it's negative. It's just like he's uh, the, the intellectual. They like ideas. They enjoy that. Now, Christopher is right that what's happening is that we have a basic sentence, 我认识人, I know people. And then everything else is just modifying the object. So 我认识很多人, I know a lot of people. 我认识很多有想法的人. And then that means I know a lot of people who are interested in ideas, right? And so... This is what's called a dingyu, and in this case, it's a duoxiang dingyu. So a dingyu is the modifications made to either the subject or the object. So not that this is a sentence that you might say, but like, um, uh, let's say, jintian八点起来的我认识很多有想法的人. Uh, right, so that would be like <laughs> the... Eight o'clock in the morning, getting up me, it knows a lot of people with opinions. And, like, nobody would ever say that sentence, but it's like you could, and that would be a dingyu on the subject of war. So, so, like, the, it's a description of me. I'm the me who got up at eight. I got up at six this morning, so I don't even know what I'm thinking there. But, you know, and then, um, you know, the de. Zhen, that's all modifications to zhen, and those are called dingyu. And why it's called a duoxiang dingyu is because there's more than one. Han duo is one, and then uh, the yoxiang fa da is one. So those two both are a modification to the object, which is zhen, and so they are both dingyu. And so duo means multiple, so multiple xiang is like um, duoxiang. It's just a, uh, a, for, a way of saying, like, multiple pieces of a, uh, of a dingyu, of a modification, a modifier.
Nice. You are getting the hang of this, Christopher. William Beeman on New Vocabulary Unlocked for Mu Di. He says, what's the difference between bang zhu wo and bang wo? What does zhu add? So here's the uh, lowdown on bang and bang zhu. And I'll also just for good measure, I'll throw in bang mang here as well. So bang and bang zhu have a similarity, which is that they can both be used as a verb. Um, now, bang mang can also be used as a verb, but it, that one kind of means like, do me a favor. So I'll put that to the side for now. Let's just compare bang and bang zhu. So they can both be used as a verb, uh, you know, qing bang zhu wo, qing bang wo. Please help me. That's the same translation for both of them. They mean the same thing. The only mild difference between the two, when they're used as a verb, when they're used as a verb, the only mild difference between the two is that bang zhu is slightly more formal because a lot of times when you have two words that are synonyms and one of them is one character and one of them is two characters, then the two character one is going to be slightly more formal. Uh, but that does not mean that you wouldn't use bang zhu in day-to-day -day life. So for example, and also formality comes up all the time. Like this is one of those things where I think it's very easy for people to think formal, I'll never use formal. And it's like, well, okay, formal can also be conceived as polite or respectful. So let's suppose that you're in a shop and you're just talking to the shopkeeper and you want to ask for help. You say, So, boss, uh, could I bother you to help me for a moment? And so it's like, that would be something where, of course, why wouldn't you want to be respectful to the shopkeeper? You want to be respectful all the time. So saying bang zhu is perfectly reasonable. If you said bang as well, it would also be fine. Like nobody's going to be offended. How dare you say only bang to me? <laughs> um, so, you know, that's, that's going to be cool. It's just a slight difference in formality. Now, there's a second difference here, which is that bang zhu can be used as a noun, whereas bang by itself cannot. So that's the most substantial difference between the two. So I might say, after the shopkeeper helps me, xie xie ni de bang zhu. Thank you for your help. I could not say xie xie ni de bang, nope. Xie xie ni de bang zhu, right? And that would be okay because that's the case of referring to help in the abstract, like your help that you gave me. And then I mentioned bang mang. So bang mang is one of those uh, verb what structures. So the verb is bang to help. And mang can be an adjective to mean busy, or it can be a noun to mean a, an errand or a, a task or a thing you're busy with, right? So any verb what structure that remains a verb like bang mang, you can put things in between it to describe the type of uh, uh, noun. So to describe the type of mang in this case. So for example, I might say, So between bang and mang, I put Can you help me with one little uh, <coughs> favor? <laughs> right? So that's an example where you would use bang mang just because the situation might warrant uh, specifying the individual thing. And uh, it's also, you know, another way to be kind of polite. So there you go. Bang, bang zhu, and bang mang. Tatimi on it's a word. And this is the first it's a word lesson in the course. 
She says, is it a good idea to choose the whole list of sets and actors, male, female, et cetera, as mentioned in your ebook, before I get started with the video course? Um, I feel like that way I will end up working with places and people I really want to work with long term. While watching the videos, I have a hard time coming up with something on my own and feel very conditioned by the suggested, suggested places and people that may not mean so much to me. Perhaps I thought I'd pick with the videos and mostly go with your suggestions when they feel right to me. Also, even if creating a list of my own before getting started feels like a lot of work, I think having that part done from before will also take away much of my initial, oh, but this is so complicated feeling that I get watching these the videos. I do trust it's a worthwhile process and gets easier though. All right, so she has another question after that, but I'll first address this. Uh, you can certainly do that if you'd like. Um, it's something that is definitely, you know, if you, the main reason why I would say that it makes sense to do that for you, if you wish, is that you say that you feel very conditioned by the suggested places and people. Now, the places you shouldn't really feel conditioned by because only places from your individual history should matter. Like you shouldn't pick, like if somebody said, I, my set is my second apartment that I lived in Alabama and you've never lived in Alabama, then that theoretically shouldn't influence you, but certainly the actors, I can see that because the actors are maybe celebrities that you know, and maybe you'd rather use more of your friends or family members from real life. So I can dig on that. Now that said, uh, it, if it is this extra thing that you, it, it's totally optional to do that. You do not need to pick all your actors and sets ahead of time. All your sets will be picked by the end of level eight and your actor, you don't even pick your last actor until level 51 of the course, which is in the intermediate course. And it's because there's a few initials that are so rarely used that a character that uses it doesn't even come up until character or level 51. So sure, you could pick that actor now, but it's not really necessary. So uh, I would say that if it's what makes you feel more... Uh, prepared for the course, go for it, but it's absolutely not a necessity. And so if you don't feel like going through the extra work, that's fine too. She has another question. Generally, when I think about quote unquote, watching a movie, it's on a screen and I myself am not a part of it. Is it good to quote unquote, watch these movies like that? Or is it better to see it with myself right there at the set in 3d quote unquote reality? If so, is it okay for me to be one of the actors and participate, or should I be just the quote-unquote director? Always right there at the set, but not interacting, always off camera. This is one of those questions that's like, it's an interesting question, but the answer is whatever works, whatever makes you remember. If adding yourself into the scene makes you remember, if making yourself the actor and seeing things from the actor's perspective makes you remember, if imagining everything outside of yourself makes you remember, then that's fine. It's all fine. It's like, there's no right or wrong about that. The key is just that the elements are all there. And so if making yourself involved in the scene is creating a barrier to memory for some reason, like imagine you made yourself uh, the actor in your mind's eye, like you're Wonder Woman, you look down and you see the Wonder Woman uh, uniform on or whatever. But you find that you keep forgetting who the actor was, well, then maybe you need to go to the director position. But maybe making yourself the actor is uh, helpful and causes you to uh, feel more connected with the scene. So it's hard to say which is right or wrong. Uh, they're all fine. Try them all out. You've got plenty of characters to practice on. So I'd say give them all a shot, uh, Tatini. Igor Alenk on Simple Final U-Chu. He says, I have a tough time with this one. I feel like I'm making a CH sound instead of CHU. 
Any help on that? I'm loving the course, by the way. Greetings from Brazil. So there is a CH sound in, in Chinese, which is often associated with the character for, for to go out, which is pronounced chu. And of course, chu is a similar type of sound because the u and the u are somewhat similar. And then, of course, the ch and the ts are, they both have that CH-y type sound. However, the tongue position is very different. So for chu, the, your tongue goes back against the roof of your mouth and uh, stays in that position the whole time. Chu, chu. And uh, then for chu, chu, uh, your lips are very tight compared to chu, and your tongue is against the back of your bottom teeth. So chu, 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 chu. Right? So that difference there should make, the, the key is to have your, Tongue is the back of your bottom teeth with tight lips. And, you know, it's, I always say chu quite harshly when I'm trying to learn it. Uh, and it's partially because I was watching this Chinese movie once where uh, the uh, Buddhist master uh, interrupted the excuses being made by his, um, his uh, disciple. And he just goes, chu. <laughs> There's just something about it that just uh, always stuck with me. I can't even remember what he said after that, but I just always remembered him going, chu. And that's exaggerated and over, overdone, but it was a movie, so what can you expect? So, chu, chu, tight lips. Tongue against the back of your bottom teeth. Intense. Chu. That should hopefully help with that. And again, you'll get used to this. Your mouth muscles will adjust, and hopefully you'll be sore, and then the next time you won't be sore. Joan Hill on Grammar Break asking, asking yes or no questions with bu. When the tone changes on the... Character, I see it has the same character, so how would I know this if I was reading the sentence that there was a tone change? So, uh, this is one of those questions that's totally understandable uh, when you're in the early stages, but there's really only two rules. One is that if you have that structure of asking a yes or no question with with bu in between, like, did you eat yet? Uh, have you eaten? Um, that is fifth tone. It's not right? Now, the other one is that if bu comes before a fourth tone, like bu shi or bu cuo or bu yao, then it's second tone. Bu, bu shi, bu shi. But if bu comes before any other tone, uh, and it's not in that yes or no structure, just like bu shi, then uh, it's uh, second tone, and it comes for any other tone, it's fourth tone, as it normally is. So its natural tone is fourth tone, so you can assume it's fourth tone, unless it comes before another fourth tone, in which case it changes to second tone, or it's in that structure of verb, boo, verb. And those are only two rules, so it seems like now, how will I know? But you'll get used to it before you know it, especially when you start reading sentences. So no problems. Next, Nacho on New vocabulary unlocked for guanxin. He says, hey, Luke and Phil, is there any difference between danxin and guanxin? Yes. So let's look at danxin for a moment. Danxin, the dan, has a the hand component. And the reason for that is because danxin is literally saying that you're pulling up your heart. It means you're worried or anxious. Like, I'm worried about what's going on. My heart is being pulled up by my hand. I'm holding it up, right? And then the opposite, the, the antonym for this is fang xin. So fang means to put something down. So fang xin means to relax or become at ease from what was previously a 
uh, anxiety-provoking situation, you can now relax. Um, and so that is the Danxin idea. Now, Guanxin is a little bit different. Guanxin means to care about, like, um, like I care about you as a person. Uh, I care about your well-being. Right? It's not necessarily anxiety, um, but it's caring. So uh, I care about my mom, right? I care about my sister. And so I care about my dad. It's like these are things that are just, they, I guanxin them. And I'm not, now my sister recently uh, was diagnosed with COVID-19. She's okay. But when she first got diagnosed with it, I was like, oh, I was very worried. She's a nurse. She's a hero. She's awesome. Um, but I was dancing. And then when she got back from the hospital and they said that she was going to be okay, I fang xin, right? And, but I also, in general, guan xin ta, so I care about her. Now, let's look a little bit at guan xin. Like, guan can mean uh, closed, but it can also kind of mean relationship because your relationships are not open to everyone. You're open to only a small set of people compared to the whole population, right? So the small group of people that get closed membership in your heart, the closed heart, guanxin, that those are the people you care about. And so um, it's also relates to the word guanxi, which means relationship in general. So that's like your your closed system of relationships. Guanxi. Uh, guanxi. All right. Andrew Clapamon, it's a word for qi. I thought it was interesting that the de hua in the sentence, qing ji xia wo de hua is attached to the wo meaning, so the words of mine, in a way. But that in the other sentence, 明年你来中国的话,来找我吧. The de hua is attached to the first half of the sentence, making it a conditional statement. Um, imagine if the predicate happened to end in wo. Yeah, so this is one of those things that, yeah, de hua can mean like everything that came before it is the condition, and then in the second half of the sentence indicates the the then part of the if then. But, and he's saying, but it could also mean like, like my words, right? If, if you had something like or ta or, or ni or it would mean that person's word. But the thing is, it's just contextual. So, uh, Right, that would be a conditional statement and ends in wo and still has the hua. But in my mind, there's no doubt that that was a conditional statement and not meaning my words. Because why would somebody be trying to find my words? That would be silly. So this is one of those things where it's you're making an interesting uh, observation there, Andrew, but it's never going to be confusing to you in reality. Nice. Next, Julie on bonus, our top five most difficult tone pairs. She says, I don't really have a problem with the tone pair third, second. Uh, for example, meiguo. Um, I always try to remember that the second tone seems to take longer to say, whilst the third tone is shorter but deeper, and the first tone is just monotonous and high. With fourth tone, I try to imagine the word falling down a hill. Sounds silly, but it helps me to visualize the pronunciation. Yeah, I like that. That's, um, you know, whatever works. If you can use a visualization to help you remember tones, like, and, and how to pronounce them correctly, that's all the better. I like it. Julia again on pick a prop for Ben. Okay, so I chose a half moon as the key to represent half in the movie of Ben. But since you said the prop should not only be in 3D, but also interactive, the half moon wouldn't be a valid option, right? Or should I have the half moon in a half moon pillow? So essentially, would it be a good idea to have two separate objects as the keyword and a prop? 
Um, I wouldn't say that a half moon is necessarily not interactive. Um, you could imagine that there's a half moon standing next to you or floating next to you, and there's asteroids hitting it, or the brightness of it increases for some reason. Uh, you know, it um, crashes into your wall. Like, there's no reason why it couldn't be interactive. So I would say that it doesn't have to be a pillow. It's perfectly fine to use. Um, and then, and as for the two separate objects for the key and the prop, it doesn't, it, it's up to you. It's like the keyword connection is meant to help you remember the character and the prop is to help you remember future characters. So they can be the same or they can be different. It's just whatever works best. Sometimes the, uh, final script of a scene that gives you the meaning isn't as appropriate as the, uh, prop usage. But sometimes it is. So it's a, there's no hard and fast rule about it. Just whatever works. Stephanie Arapian on It's a Word for Bun. The third example is interesting as kan seems to alter meaning to read instead of to look or see. So she's referring to kan shu, which means to read. So it literally is look book uh, to read. And she says, I can definitely understand that looking, seeing a book implies reading it. But curious, I'm sure there's another character for to read. Yes, there is. Du. The word du means to read. Um, however, to say du shu uh, can literally mean to read a book, but it can also mean to study at university. Kan uh, shu is what you're mostly going to see people say. Or kan bao zhi, read the newspaper. Or kan wen zheng. These are all things that you'll see people say uh, in relation to reading, it's just that's just what is much more common colloquially for people to say. That said, though, the character du is the one that means uh, to read officially. It's like official uh, meaning, whereas kan by itself means to look, but kan shu means to read. Christopher Thompson on Make a Movie for Pa. Ah, this is what I get for zipping through so quickly. I missed that the emotion radical is a variant of xin, and so it failed to register that this was another form. Thanks for the heads up, and I shall endeavor to pay closer attention in the future. The good news is that by combing through previous lessons, I got to do a nice review of the material. Yeah, xin can be a component, a full component in and of itself, uh, usually on the top or bottom of a character. Uh, but when it's on the left side, it changes form. And that one's usually used specifically more for emotions. It tends to be focused on emotions. For example, pa, which means to be afraid. So, yeah, just look out for that. And I would recommend having two separate props for them. For the full form, I'd recommend just having a heart. Like, a, it could be a, a cartoony-like heart, or it could be, like, an actual human-like heart that's beating. Uh, and then, as for the emotion one, uh, something that you find to be related to emotions. For me, it was a joy from uh, the movie Inside Out. Julie Lund on level two complete. Is it possible to replay slash listen to a card's audio when I'm in browse, like a command or something? Yeah. So when you're in browse in the top and you're you you have a um, card selected in the top right corner, there's a uh, button that says preview, which will show you a preview of the front of the card, and then there's an arrow to show the back of the card. The audio is on the back, so if you flip to the back of the card in the preview function, it will play the audio. So that's what you can do in browse to uh, get the audio there. Julie Lund on bonus, SRS the frequency game. And so we have a rare, uh, I like Anki comment. She says, I absolutely love Anki. I've been using it for years and actually wrote my final paper, 30 pages in Swedish high school about it. I examined the correlation between second language learning in elementary school, their final grades, language method they used, and finally what their actual level 
was according to the Common European Framework of References for Languages, the CEFR. I found out several things. One, after three years of learning their second language, the majority were still on an A1 level, total, total beginner. Despite this low level, most of these students got the highest grade possible, B or A. Two, the ones who had used similar methods to Anki SRS and had made a conscious effort to review what they've learned over a longer period of time actually managed to reach a higher level of quote-unquote fluency, A2, B1, though they didn't necessarily get the highest grades. This is partially because of the teacher's strict way of assessing their students. Although the research paper has some flaws, I only had 202 participants in the survey, it still shows a pattern. With determination to learn Chinese and finishing these Anki cards every day, we can then all reach our language goals in the most effective way. Anki might not be the most flattering software, but hey, it's the content that counts. Couldn't agree more, Julian. It's not surprising to me at all that people who are not following the um, university curriculum or the school's curriculum, or yeah, it, might, it sounds like it's a, a school, um, would get better fluency in lower grades because... Language acquisition should not be an academic subject at all. It's a miscategorization. It's a fundamental mis miscategorization we've made. Uh, you know, I have a degree in Chinese, and I think that's kind of silly. Like, it's like, how can you have a degree in a language? It's a thing you just use and speak in life. Like, it's not like astrophysics where it's like, okay, I need to prove that I can uh, – like, your proof of being able to speak Chinese is that you can speak Chinese. You don't need a degree to, to prove that. And so it's the kind of thing that uh, – you know, schools, they have to have metrics by which to measure you. Those metrics are based on, you know, tests. They're very rarely based on uh, some kind of actual um, sort of test of fluency, which would be kind of that which you would be able to improvise around. So it's a bit of a shame that it's like that, but it is what it is. Thank you for sharing that, Julia. It was very interesting to hear about that research. Rick Santos on Moving Forward Shadowing. He says, for the past two weeks, I skipped this lesson, the Unit 10 moving forward, because I thought I know what shadowing is. Now, after listening to your talk and doing shadowing with uh, moderately slow bachata music in the background, I danced around the room in a safe, limited space listening to an easy Chinese beginner mini story. This is a very good tip, tip indeed, and the dance music is in itself limited more or less to five minutes. So I either repeat the music and or dance to something I am familiar with, the steps with, and it mixes with the story in Chinese. With Spanish music in the background, despacito. <laughs> Thanks for the tips. Now I will t uh, have a look for other short stories. Yeah, so what Rick is mostly referring to is that we talk about when you're shadowing, having some kind of walking going on or maybe a slow dance actually is uh, great for helping you uh, get used to the flow and not feeling like... Um, and reminding your brain that this should be something that is natural and you can do while doing something else. Speaking, of course, should come naturally. And as you shadow, it should be the kind of thing that, you know, you don't want to be in a situation where every time you speak Chinese, you have to stop and put all of your focus. You, know, you want to be able to focus on the person you're talking to and what they're saying and not feel like everything is about what do I say next? What do I say next? Right. And a big way to help with that is by walking while doing your shadowing. It's kind of a uh, it's, it's very interesting how that seems to work. Gareth Edwards on Make a Movie for Ma. If I am having trouble picturing the roof of the set, is it okay to just make it up? 
I can remember where I lived in Beijing, but it was a high-rise block of flats, so I had no access to the roof. So there's two options. One, maybe you could make it up.、Uh, you could imagine what it might be like on that roof, and then imagine the surroundings, which will therefore remind you that it's your apartment in Beijing. That probably will work, to be honest. But if it doesn't, you could just choose any other unassigned area. That's related to that particular place. As long as it's clear to you that the place I'm in is my apartment in Beijing, and then you're in this fifth area compared to the other four tones, then you should be fine. It could be a room that you have unassigned, or it could be an area in the courtyard of your apartment complex that is clearly not the first tone area. Blah blah blah. So these are all possibilities. This week we only have three movie scene shares. The first one is Rebecca Weibel on Make a Movie for Wang. And、this means to perish. Woody has come back to my ANG set in the tropics to discover that the power has failed and all the food in the fridge of the kitchen has perished. Ah, nice. The smell is so bad that he ties a top hat to his face to breathe through. He uses the stick prop to open the fridge door and the razor blade to scrape out the perished, liquefied food. Great, because they're perishables, right? That's the whole point, and of course, he、uh, the power failing makes the perishable foods well perish, and that's the key word.、Uh, the razor blade and the stick both make perfect sense, and、uh, the way he used the top hat makes sense. That is a perfect scene. Well done, Rebecca. Irene Ong on make a movie for Zong. So Zong can mean always, can mean general, blah blah. How about a current event? I have made most of my finals as countries. Z arrives safely in Hong Kong, even though his family warns him of the political unrest there. He steps into his bedroom, and is confronted by a heart sitting on the table. Suddenly, a pair of horns start hovering above, and out jumps the Cookie Monster mouth, and he reminds Z to always be careful. So, all right. So, I think that. You know the always be careful thing、uh, that might work. It seems like a little bit、uh, too vague. I, I, I could see you. I could see you maybe forgetting that always was the key word here in the future because we have, you know, the the Cookie Monster mouth is clear, the the horns are clear, and the the、um, the heart is clear. And、uh, but like a lot of things happen suddenly in these scenes. So the idea that Something happening suddenly, making you think, "Be careful." That could apply to a lot of different scenes. So we might want to come up with some other associations to with this. So always, <laughs> this is funny that I have this association. But there was always these commercials. There were always these commercials about always, which is a、uh, female deodorant brand that was going. That, like when I was a kid, they were always there. So the deodorant stick called always、uh, could be a personification of the. The word, because you know you're always protected with deodorant. <laughs> just an idea that that's just my personal association that might mean nothing to you, Irene. But you want to find something that's a little bit more,、uh, sort of solid,、um, because the always idea there is probably not clear enough. George Lore on make a movie for Jiang, which means river. In front of my ANG site, a horrible accident has happened. An I-beam has crashed down from a construction area directly onto a car of a Chinese food delivery service. As Julia Roberts arrives at, arrives at the scene, she wonders why the bottle of water still stands on the car and has not fallen fallen down. 
She also recognizes the special name of the food delivery service, Yancey River Restaurant. Yes, okay. Of course, this town means the Yancey River. How about this? Julia Roberts sees the uh, I-beam fall and hit the um, water bottle, and the water bottle causes the entire Yancey River to flow out of it. Like, it's obviously ridiculous and couldn't happen, but it's magic. It's your imagination. And it's, it, it, um, it, uh, get, Julie Roberts gets taken away in the flow of the newly formed Yancey River. The reason why I say that is because this, uh, this particular scene ends in text, the name Yancey River on the name of the uh, food delivery service. Now, that could work, but because it's not necessarily as uh, visual... I'd say that let's add that extra bit of the river flowing out of the water bottle, and then that'll make it even clearer. So that's all for this week of the Mandarin Blueprint Podcast. Thank you for listening. My name is Phil Crimmins, and check out mandarinblueprint.com to learn more about how you can learn Mandarin faster than was ever possible before over at mandarinblueprint.com.